Please pray with me. Father, we want to be hearers of the word and doers of the word. So we pray now that you would help us uh, to engage with what you would have for us this morning. That our minds uh, would be ever transformed, that our hearts would be formed more and more uh, with affections and desires for you and for the things of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A little over a week ago, the NBA uh, inducted its next class into the Hall of Fame. And if you're a sports fan at all, you saw that that uh, class of people going to the Hall of Fame had a number of interesting characters, but perhaps none more interesting than NBA great Shaquille O'Neal. Shaquille O'Neal gave a semi-serious, semi-comical accounting of his life and career in basketball as he moved from team to team to team, including the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, over many years in the league. And during his speech, about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through, he paused to introduce his six children. He introduced his three daughters first and then on to one of his sons. And then he moved to his middle son, uh, a junior in high school named Sharif O'Neal. And he paused and he said, my son Sharif is one of the best juniors in this country. And son, I hope to see you standing up here on this platform someday. And then he moved on down to his youngest son, a 13 or 14-year-old boy named Shakir O'Neal. And he said, Shakir, my twin, my twin, he is a bad, bad little man. (laughs) And after going on to talk about how poor the boy's behavior actually is, he then went on to say, and son, I hope to see you up here on this platform someday. Like father like son. How is that for expectations for your children? Well, even though not many athletes followed their parents' footsteps all the way to the Hall of Fame platform, we do see that many children follow their, their parents' footsteps in a variety of ways. Think about it with me for a minute. Maybe you can think of some of the ways that you have followed your parents' footsteps or that your children are following yours. Many children have close resemblance to their parents. We know that to be true. We see it as we look at Sharif O'Neal and Shaquille O'Neal. If you walk down the children's wing, you can see little people that resemble their parents and the like. Many children follow their parents' career paths, not just in professional athletics or in Hollywood and theater, but even in the normal jobs that most of us do every day and day in and day out basis. Many sons follow their dads and marrying women like their mothers. And many daughters follow their mothers and marrying women like their dads. And skills and abilities and giftings are imparted from one generation on down to the next. Many natural propensities we have are propensities that came from our very parents. In a very real way, we resemble our parents, don't we? Who you come from informs who you are. Who you come from informs, at least in some ways, who you will become. Now some of you say, I don't want to be like my parents. Or I don't want my children to be like me. I want something more. I want something different. I want something better. 
And this is where some of the good news of Genesis chapter 1 is found. Because even though children resemble their earthly parents, there's a greater resemblance that all of us have. And that is a resemblance to the person of God himself. Now last week we began this new sermon series called Beyond Repair. We're looking at Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And in it we saw the creation of God through seven days as he made all the different parts and pieces of this world as we know it. And behold, it was good. We stepped back and we looked at his majestic power, his creative ability, his ability to take absolutely nothing and to form something. And at the end of that, we really just have one response as a people. Wow. God, in his magnificent power, is amazing. And when he reaches the pinnacle of his creation, the crowning glory of his creation comes in the form of human beings. And they are not like the other parts of his creation. In fact, they are completely unique. And that's where we pick up this account. So I want to ask you to look at Genesis chapter 1 with me. Today we are going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And then we're going to skip forward to chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. This is what it says. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Looking forward to chapter 2, verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. When no bush of the field was yet in, on land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The first name is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Dalium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the river Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, 
you shall surely die. So God comes to the pinnacle of his creation. And as we see in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he creates man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You are created in the image of God. And in case that sounds trite or a good theological cliche, pause for a moment and just consider what kind of image we are talking about. We are talking about an image of the most powerful, of the King of kings, of the Lord of lords. We're talking about the image of one who represents all love, purity, faithfulness. We're talking about the image of one who is completely upright and true in his nature. We're talking about one in which all of earth will eventually submit itself to him and all creatures on heaven and on earth bow down before him. We're talking about an image of God that is shown throughout the course of the Bible that when people encounter him, they fall on their faces before him because so great is this God that he is worthy of full and utter submission. And he imprints some of that image and that likeness upon you. Verse 26 and 27, two specific words. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Scholars have tried to narrow down for centuries what these words precisely mean in this case. We have a variety of ideas, and we see that this expression is not unique to this one place in the Bible. In fact, just a few chapters down in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, it says this. This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, in his, after his own image, and he named him Seth. And so we see that the way that children are made in the likeness of their parents, this informs us or gives us in a, a glimpse of what it means for all of us to be made after the image and likeness of God. You look at your own children and you see glimpses of yourself. It makes sense that Shaquille O'Neal reflects Shaquille O'Neal in certain ways. It makes sense that Karsten Gatsky reflects Nick Gatsky in certain ways that are unique to that image. We might say it this way. To be made in God's image means that humans are like God and that they represent God. You're like God and that you represent him. And there's an internal sort of substantive component to this as well as an external component as well. Internally, we are made up of an eternal soul. We have a conscience. We have the ability to reason. These things are unique to the whole created order. If you were to pick out all of the animals of creation and one person and put them in a big football stadium today at 1 o'clock, you could identify the person very, very quickly. Couldn't you? He is unique in this creation, internally and externally. 
In the original state, humans had a moral purity and they were inclined toward and had an appetite for things that were good and right and godly. If God is holy and we are made in his image, then it stands to reason that before sin entered the world that people too were holy. No faults, no stains, no blemishes of character, no ill motives. Externally, to be like God is to reflect how he is a God who relates to others, and we hence relate to others in the world around us. Most specifically, we see that God functions in a trinity, which is a relational being of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And externally, humans then function in a level of relationality with one another. And furthermore, we see in verse 27 that part of this role is to take dominion. God has created us with superior abilities to the animals and to the land, and that reflects his superior abilities found in this creation. We might take a step back and say the whole summary of this creation, as it relates to humans, is this. God's image in you points to your worth and to your purpose in life. God's image in you points to your worth and it points to your purpose in life. Now we could go to great lengths to try to flesh out all the different possibilities of what this means to be like God and to represent him. But I want to focus on six major implications for us this morning. What does it mean, what's the big deal that we're made in God's image? How does that inform how we live daily? Implication number one. Because you are made in God's image, this informs your idea of self-worth. Some of us are here today, and when we really stop to think about this, We say, wow, well, the apple has fallen pretty far away from the tree. Especially in my own life. We look at our life history. We recount the mistakes that we've made, both the little ones and the big ones. And we say, there's no possible way that I reflect the image of that holy, just, loving, incredible God that you just described. I've been through a divorce. I view pornography. I, in the deepest recesses of my thoughts and mind, think wicked things. I've been ungrateful toward my parents. I've slept with my boyfriend before marriage. I've had an abortion. I've had an addiction. I've been abused by somebody, and I am damaged goods. There's no possible way that I can reflect that type of image of glory that you're talking about. When I really look at who I am, my thoughts or my motives or my sinful propensities, I'm not like that person. I do not reflect that God. I think some of us think that. And all of us probably think that sometime or another. I have here in my wallet a $20 bill that I would like to give to somebody this morning. Would anybody like $20? Anybody? All right, you, young man, come on up. 
Yeah, you. They're waiting for you. Hurry. Would you like this $20 bill? Yes. Yes, sir. I might give you 40. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. If I do this and crumple up this $20 bill, would you still like it? Yeah? All right. What if I do this? Would you still like it? Yeah? Well, there you go. Take a seat. Of course he still would like it. Why does he still like it? Because no matter what I did to the money, it is still worth $20. It did not decrease in value. Many times in our lives, we are dropped, we're crumpled, we're dirtied, we're stepped on, and the decisions that we make, the sinful choices or the circumstances that come our way, lead us to those types of situations. And we feel as though we are worthless. But no matter what has happened to you, and no matter what will happen to you, you have value in God's eyes. He looks at you, whether dirty or clean, whether crumpled or finely creased. He looks at you as priceless to him. Why? Because you are made in his image. And you have inherent value because of that image. Implication number two. If we're made in God's image, then this puts into perspective the giving of life and the taking away of life. Think about it. If it's true that all of us have inherent value because of this image, then when we have children, they too are infinitely valuable because they are image bearers, not just of us, but they are image bearers of God himself. Life-giving is a wonderful thing. Conversely, when we indiscriminately take innocent life, we remove one of God's representatives, one of his image bearers, and the results are significant. God is sacred, and therefore, people who are made in his image are sacred. And when we take life indiscriminately, the consequences are severe. So early on, we see in the Bible that after sin entered the world, people began to take the lives of other people. And God sets the severity of this action in its proper light. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. He sees the ground of the argument is that man is an image bearer. And this is the foundation of what we would consider legal precedent of why murder is one of the most severe crimes in our society. Because it's taking of life. It's taking an image bearer. Implication number three. Of course, this means that abortion is wrong. Because even in the most complicated cases, we still have to reckon with the reality of killing an image bearer of God. Implication number four. If all people have inherent value, 
then this, the idea of how we relate to people in life and death extends to how we relate to people in just our everyday types of interactions, doesn't it? The most basic form of human decency is founded in the fact that we are relating as Christians with other image bearers of God. And this has all kinds of sort of trickle-down effects into how we treat people. Here are a couple of the big ones. This means that people of the opposite sex are no longer to be considered as mere sexual pursuits, like our society might tell us. This means that other people around us shouldn't be looked at as a means to simply gain more for myself, because they, too, are of great value. This means that the way I talk to people and the way I talk about people should be intentional in its nature. James warns us about this in James chapter 3 and the power of the tongue and all the habit and the pattern that we all form in our speech. He says in James chapter 3, but he grounds in the image of God, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So God's image in you points to your worth. And it points to the worth of the other people around you. You are of incredible value to him. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, no matter what earthly family you've been a part of, the greater source of your identity in this life is found, it's rooted, it's grounded in the person of God himself. You represent a holy God of the universe. And if that's true, then not only does this point to your value, but it also points to your purpose in this life. And that leads us to our fifth implication. And that is, part of our purpose in this life is that we are created to serve God. When you look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God creates man and woman and he immediately ties them to their work. Part of you serving God is very simply to work. Four times we see early on in this book of Genesis that he sets them to work. Look with me, Genesis chapter 1, 26. Right after God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. To exercise dominion includes a level of work. Looking at verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's the fun part of work. And fill the earth and subdue it. He puts them to work. Move over to chapter 2. He talks about the waiting for them to work. In verse 5, said the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Moving down further to verse 15, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And looking ahead a little bit into next week's text, chapter 2, verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of heaven and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was no 
helper found suitable for him. God set him to a specific task of work. Here's the point. We are made to work. In a society that has benefited greatly from hard workers and hard work, we know this to be true. And yet at other times, our society has sought to reconstitute the importance of work and to promote the idea, particularly in America, that the greatest point of your life is retirement. When you don't have to work anymore. Doesn't life get great then? And yet, study after study after study shows that those who still, after their main career has come to its completion, those who still engage in some kind of work or some kind of service outside of their own recreation are healthier, struggle with less depression, live longer, and generally are more happy and fulfilled. Why? Because we weren't made to recreate. (laughs) We were made to work. And this is a good part of serving God. Now, beyond that healthy pattern of work that God has placed for us, there's a specific call to work for God himself as to please him. We see throughout the Bible that God has gifted you with spiritual gifts if you're a Christian for the sake of serving God and building up the believers around you. This is good work. We see again and again that God calls people toward good works, generally speaking, to reflect his good nature. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are his workmanship in line with Genesis 1, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So part of your purpose in life is to work, and part of your purpose in life is to work for God specifically in serving him. And I challenge you, if you are not actively serving him, then you're missing out. You're missing out on part of your very purpose. Because God's image in you points to your worth. But it also points to your purpose for this life. We see implication number six, that beyond serving God, his image in us means that we are created to be in a unique relationship with him. When you take a step back and you look at the whole picture of creation, day one through day seven, and all of the different animals and land and plants that God has created, humans are unique in many, many ways. But the primary uniqueness is this imprint of God upon them. And he see, we see this dynamic in which God, in fact, desires to have a special relationship with them, unique to all the rest of creation between him and humans. He makes himself known to them, and he does so generously and in an ongoing fashion. God creates only one species after his likeness, and the fact that he does this is a unique bond between them. There's no further explanation that's needed. God walks among the people in the garden. He displays his desire for relationship with them and expects them to desire relationship with him. We see in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the end of our text for today, that God gives explicit command to them. And this command is grounded in relationship. This is what it says. The Lord God commanded the man, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
What does this tell us about relationship? It tells us, number one, that God expects his relationship with us to have a healthy level of authority and submission. He's the one that commands to the created beings, and they are the one who follow his commands. That's a relational dynamic. Number two, it shows that he is concerned for their well-being. He says, these are the things that are good for you, and these are the things that are bad for you. Do the things that are good for you. That's a relational command in its nature, and it points to a larger, unique relationship that we have with God. God's image in you points to your value. And it also points to your purpose in this life. But here's the problem. And we all know the problem, don't we? The problem is that sin distorts the image and it distorts the purpose as we perceive it. Mike Glenn wrote, of the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who told a story of thieves who broke into a jewelry store, but they didn't steal anything. They simply rearranged the price tags on everything. And so the next morning, the store opened and expensive jewelry was being sold as junk. And junk was being sold as expensive. And his point was obvious. We live in a world where someone has rearranged the price tags. Nowhere is the switching of the price tags more evident than in this area of self-esteem or self-worth. What makes you valuable? In our culture, people are valued for how they look, for what they can do or what they have, but rarely for who they are. In our world, you have to have beauty that is defined by a mathematical equation. And if you know anything about our media today, there are proportions and equations to define what good and what beautiful looks like. In our world, entertaining is important. Not talent, but entertainment. And if you aren't entertaining, then there's not a place for you. In a celebrity-driven culture like ours, if you can't make the top 100 list somewhere, then you're not worth talking to or talking about. The pressure for self-esteem has tremendous effects on our young generation. It means that young men do certain things to try to define themselves as manly. Young women get themselves into destructive relationships because if they don't play by the cultural rules then they're not considered to be a person worth investing in. But in the middle of all that, every, every single day, I am reminded of the importance of the gospel. That you are loved. That you didn't do anything to earn it. That God gifts you with his grace. That you are created in his image. And even if you've tarnished that image by your sin, that you're still valuable to him and he still wants a relationship with you. In fact, he goes to such a great a length as to purchase you back to himself through the death of his son, Jesus, so that you would have a new way to live with him in his resurrection life. 
For as many verses in the Bible talk about you being created in God's image, there's also as many verses that talk about you being recreated into a new image. Ephesians chapter 4 is one such verse. It says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That is to say, tarnished image. <laughs> Once was good, was not, is now very bad because of sin. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on a new self, a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so God's work in Jesus Christ, when you fast forward this from creation to the, its complete fulfillment, is to say, I am going to restore image in you. An image that was once beautiful and perfect and then was lost by sin. And we'll talk more about that in chapter 3 in a couple weeks. But will be reclaimed through your faith in my son. You are valuable. Incredibly so. You know, paintings are valuable and increase in value depending upon who painted them or whose signature is on the bottom of the painting. Pause for a moment, just for a moment, and consider what a museum would value you at with the signature of God himself upon your life. That's what Imago Dei or being made in the image of God is really all about. Is that God has signed you and me. And our self-worth is not based on what we have or what we've done. Your value is found in who you came from. God himself. And when you know what you're worth... That changes everything. What will you change about your life as you understand your true value and worth that God has given you? God's image in you informs your worth and it creates purpose for your very own life. And perhaps there's no greater distortion or one of the greatest distortions of our time, the importance of human life is certainly seen in World War II. During World War II, German paratroopers invaded the island of Crete. And when they landed at Malmin, the islanders met them there to fight, but they had nothing more than kitchen knives and pitchforks. And the consequences of their resistance was devastating. As the German troops came in, they lined up people from all the villages and towns, and they shot them all. Overlooking that very same airstrip today is an institute for peace and understanding, founded by a Greek man named Alexander Papadaris. Papadaris was just six years old during World War II. His home village was destroyed, and he was subsequently imprisoned in a concentration camp for a number of months. And when the war ended, and as time went on, he saw growing in his people a cultural hatred against the Germans for the wrongs that had been done to them. And so he established this institute at this place that embodied the horrors and hatreds that were unleashed by the war. 
And one day at the end of a lecture, Papadaris was asked, what is the meaning of life? And the room filled with sort of a nervous laugh because they were talking to a man who had experienced some of the worst horrors of human existence and had now come to another side. And they waited (laughs) to see how he would respond or if he would respond at all. But he answered them. He opened his wallet and he took out a small round mirror and he held it up for everyone to see. During the war, he was just a small boy when he came across a motorcycle wreck. It was a motorcycle that had belonged to some of the German soldiers. And he saw pieces of the broken side mirrors on the ground. He tried to put them back together, but he was unable to do so. So he took the largest piece, and he began to grind it against a stone to smooth out the edges until it eventually became a small round mirror of its own. And he used it as a toy. He was fascinated by the ability to shine light into holes and into crevices that he would come across. He kept that mirror, and as he grew up and over time, it came to symbolize something very important. The mirror became a metaphor with what he might do with his life. He said, I am a fragment of a mirror whose whole design and shape I do not know. Nevertheless, with what I have, I can reflect light into dark places of this world, into black places, into the hearts of men, and change some of the things in some people. Perhaps others may see and do likewise. This is what I'm about. This is the meaning of my life. God's image in you informs your worth. And it informs the purpose of your life. And so I encourage you, and the encouragement from this text today is that we reorient our thinking about ourselves and those around us, and we reorient our purpose in according to this very image. Let's pray together. Lord God, that you would see fit to imprint your very image on us is something that we cannot completely understand. It is something that we so quickly seem to toss aside, and I pray, God, that first you would forgive us. You would forgive us for minimizing this incredible, miraculous act, and that you would forgive us for regularly tarnishing your image. God, we ask that you would allow the truth of this relational dynamic that you have with us, this likeness and representation to more fully motivate us in the way that we live for. We thank you for Christ who redeems an image in us that is so tarnished but never lost. And I pray that the encouragement of being part of your family would rest wonderfully with us all. In Jesus' name, amen.